Friend, do you, do, do you struggle with gratitude? Do you find it hard to be thankful for others? Perhaps those in your home or in your workplace? If we were honest about our culture, we live in a culture that is rarely thankful. We grow up in a world where we relegate Thanksgiving to a holiday. Think about that for just a moment. That the government of the United States of America has to put on the calendar for you to be reminded to be thankful. In a world that is constantly jockeying for power and position, where those in authority use their positions to grab and keep even greater power, one isn't the least surprised or confused that gratitude is far behind. When mottos like the self-made man or the self-made woman are regularly used both in the workplace and in the public square, a society cannot easily lend itself to gratitude and thanksgiving. Theologically, the Bible makes clear that where pride is a central problem, that ingratitude lies close behind. As King David will reveal to us this morning in Psalm 30, that only through genuine humility can one begin to cultivate a heart of thankfulness in their life. Friends, I invite you this morning to turn to Psalm 30. Rather short psalm. Perhaps the preacher picked because he was coming back from vacation. We'll leave the lengthier ones for Pastor Rod. There is something sweet about preaching only 12 verses after preaching at times through Genesis 3 or 4 chapters. Uh, We are told in this psalm that it is a psalm of David. King David. The great king of Israel. Historically, the psalmist places it as a song at the dedication of the temple. There's some confusion as to whether or not this perhaps was written by David given to his son Solomon. You see, David wasn't alive when the temple was dedicated. Perhaps, though, David wrote it early in life and and used it at the dedication of his house. You'll be reminded he built his house before he built the temple, a glorious place, and he dedicated it. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, we are told that he dedicates it to the Lord. Regardless of where one finds this historically placed The psalmist isn't so concerned. In fact, as you read through the psalm, as we see it this morning, the temple really has nothing to do with the psalm at all, with exception of the invitation of the congregation of saints to worship. The psalmist describes for himself a situation in which he is perhaps close to death. As we look back over the life of David, this could have come up in many different places in his life where he was Ailed by sickness because of the regular assaults by Saul. Or perhaps even the attacks that he faced from within his own family. So David says that he rejoices that his foes 
did not have some sort of joy over him or rejoice over him. Perhaps this was a reference to his own son Absalom, who sought to take the throne from him later in life. Regardless, it seems to be some sort of physical sickness or even perhaps a soul sickness that the psalmist was confronted with. Regardless of the specific circumstances of the psalm, regardless of really the historical context, the psalmist intentionally invites in a general audience to consider God's character, that he is merciful and just, that he is gracious to forgive sin, and pardon iniquity, and provides then for the reader, for you and I, an opportunity to join in corporate worship and individual praise to a holy God who is good and right. With that in mind, let's read. I'm going to read Psalm 30. I invite you to turn. 461 in the Pew Bibles, the black ones, if you have not turned there. If you don't have your Bible open, just let me encourage you to do that. Um, you will be helped by it. I don't have much to say, but this psalm has great things for us. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you've healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David is seeking us to contemplate the goodness of God and in response give thanks to Him. The Lord is worthy of praise and thanksgiving because of His continual care of our life. This is David's point. And this morning, the the purpose of this sermon is to invite you There's a strong invitation in this psalm to to come and to corporately praise God, to give thanks to God for his continual protection and care over your life. So my hope this morning is that you would, would take the opportunity to really reflect on the ways God has cared for you historically in the past, perhaps presently in your life. 
and as a result, give thanks to him. And so this morning, the, the question I have for us that I want us to sort of work through is how do I, how do you cultivate a lifetime of thanksgiving? David sort of lays out in this psalm, if you just sort of walk through this psalm, uh, four steps to cultivating a sort of lifetime of thanksgiving. David learns from his mistakes. He learns from his pride and ingratitude. And through that experience, learns how to cultivate thanksgiving in his life. So this morning, if you're, if you're thinking, man, I, I want to be more thankful. I want to be more grateful. I just don't know how to get engaged in that. How do I begin to cultivate that in my life? As Christians, we want to see thanksgiving as a regular part of the Christian experience. And so this morning, there's four points that we're going to consider. First, exalt the Lord for his protection and care. Exalt the Lord for his protection and care, verses 1 through 3. Second step we'll see is that we are to invite others, other saints, to join in thanksgiving. That there is something instructive about inviting others in to thanksgiving. So we'll see that in verses five, 4 and 5. Then in verses 6 and 7, we'll see that a part of cultivating thanksgiving requires us to confess our sin before the Lord, particularly our sin of pride that has led to our ingratitude. And then fourth and finally, in verses 8 through 12, we see that we are to give thanks consistently, consistently. If we are consistent in our giving thanks, as, as, as the... As the psalmist, as David concludes, he says, listen, I make a vow to you, Lord, that I will forever give thanks to you. He promises to consistently give thanks for the rest of his life. He makes it a priority in his life. So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 in the psalm is that we are to exalt the Lord for his protection and care. Look with me at verse 1 again. David begins by saying, I will extol you, O Lord. I will. It's a promise. I will do this. I will extol you. He begins by declaring that he will exalt the Lord. The word extol, if you're not, you know, using that much, probably not. Uh, the word itself means to exalt. To exalt the Lord as the true king. To extol someone means to put them in the highest position possible. To exalt the Lord. This doesn't mean merely just to, to give verbal reverence, but to, but to literally mean that this God is the God who is above everything else. And if you follow the logic of that, if God is above everything else, then he is the provider of all things. If God is the true king, then he is the one who's given me all that I have. David is the king of Israel. Unquestionably the highest position in all the land of Israel. King David, sitting on the throne, has more authority than anyone else in all the land of Egypt or Israel. However, in this psalm, he attributes that there is one greater than him. One in a higher position than even himself. David declares that the true king of Israel is the Lord. This is what he does in the previous psalm, in Psalm 29. So if you just look there, Psalm 29, verse 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. 
David attributes that the Lord is the one who is the sovereign ruler of the nation of Israel. Though David is king of Israel, he is a mere reflection of the king in heaven. And he promises that he will give glory where glory is due. You see, you can't be thankful if you are the one who's provided and cared for your own life. You see, you can't You can't be thankful if you're the one who's responsible for all the good that has come into your life. If you're the one who made your way in this world, you're the one who pulled yourself up by those proverbial bootstraps we talk about often, then you will be ingrateful to the king of heaven who's really provided for you. You see, it's a positional change. He says, if I'm going to cultivate thanksgiving, I've got to recognize that God is king, not me. I'm not the one who has given myself the ability to think and to do the job I do and therefore make the money I make. No, the Bible says that the breath of God is in me. Therefore, without God's breath, I'm dead. As David will make clear at the end, if I'm dead, I can't praise you. Dead men don't praise God. And so in this text, David is making clear positionally that if God is the true king and he is the high and lifted up one, then he is the one who has provided. David goes on in verses 1 through 3 to give three reasons why he is extolling God. Well, what has God done in David's life? What what is it that David is thankful for? Well, he gives three reasons here. Verse 1, for deliverance. Verse 2, for answered prayer. And verse 3, for his rescuing him from death. In verse 1, he says, O Lord, you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. David uses the language of someone going to a well and putting down And pulling up out of that well the water, David pictures himself as one at the bottom of a well, at the bottom of a pit. And God drew him up out of that pit. It's a a very dark situation. It's a a very, I mean, if you were in the bottom of a a well, you you can't get out of that well. All the scraping and climbing would not get you out. David is making clear, I was in an impossible situation. I could not rescue myself. I needed someone greater than me to rescue. Throughout David's life, David faced many pits. One, for example, is when he was in King Saul's court, where he was regularly tormented by a crazed king. And King Saul was crazy. He was out of his mind. He was a lunatic. And he had a insatiable sort of desire to see David killed. I mean, none of us really have anyone that wants to kill us, I hope. But David regularly lived in fear for his own life. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, later in life, Absalom, his his own son, wanted him dead. There was many in David's life, many seasons... Perhaps when he was in the cave of Adullam. The darkness of that cave was a picture of the darkness of his own life. But God had drove him up. God had rescued him. But more than that, he didn't just deliver him from his foes. We're told that 
in verse 2 that he answered his prayers. Brothers and sisters, I make this point regularly because I, I think it's just a point I want to hammer home to you. Because you assume that when you pray, God's going to answer it. You think it's like a formula. If I, if I do this and then I do that, then this is what's going to result. But if you are a careful student of the Bible, you'll see that often God does not answer prayer, right? He hears the prayer, but he doesn't answer the prayer. Notice what David emphatically says. He says that God not only heard my prayer, I cried to you for help, but that he healed me. In other words, God not only hears our prayers, but he has the power and ability to answer them. Friends, this is what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. Imagine you're praying to a statue called Buddha, and you think that thing is going to answer your prayer. Many examples of where Christianity rises above other world religions because our God is not one who merely hears and is aware of our struggles, but one who has the power, the sovereign power, the kingship to enter into our circumstances and deliver us. We see then finally in verse 3 that that he ascribes glory to God because he rescued him. He describes the Lord's work in in terms of soul restoration. This is why I'm, I'm, I'm sort of leaning more that David's problem here wasn't merely physical, but it was spiritual. As we'll see later, because of his sin in verse 6, this was a a spiritual infliction. Maybe there was physical ailments. Perhaps he was suffering physically. But at the end of the day, there was some soul issues going on in David's heart. Look at how he describes it there. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament is the place of utter separation from God. This is a fearful place in the Old Testament. And David describes himself as one alienated and separated from God and God's care and love and protection. But he describes restoration. We use the word regeneration, right, in the New Testament context. A similar idea in that restoration. The life-giving power of God's work. And so, Paul, or uh, David rather, experienced a, a restored soul. Soul was weary. Perhaps he was depressed. Perhaps he was downcast. Perhaps he was crying out in utter despair. And God, in that moment, hearing his cry for help, rescued him from death. Perhaps physical or even spiritual death. Friend, what evidence of God's care do you see in your life? Could you put together such a list? Do you ever take time to put together such a list? This is David putting thought into what God has done in his life. You know, so often we have our, our, our gaze on, the, on what's in front of us. And we rarely reflect in, in a good way, in a positive way, on the past. Well, we reflect on the past. We, we regret on our mistakes and, and our regrets and, and all the ways that we were foolish. But how often do you just take a moment just to sit down and, and write down one or two, three, four or five ways that God has cared for you, where you have seen the hand of God in your life, where you can then be thankful? Brothers and sisters, take time today to meditate on the ways God has cared for you. 
If you're a Christian this morning and you're struggling in that area, well, let me just point you to Jesus, okay? Uh, Jesus came and he died the death you deserve. He was innocent. He died because you love sin more than you love God. And he came because of your selfishness and my selfish sin. And he died the death we deserve. And he was raised to new life eternally and sits enthroned. Friend, there is much to be thankful for in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider this foremost way in which God has rescued you from sin and healed your soul from sin's infection through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. The truth is this in verses 1 through 3, that thanksgiving begins by exalting the one who is worthy of our affections and the giving of thanks. God alone, not you, not your parents, not your boss, not anyone, is worthy of thanksgiving more than God. He alone is the source of our deliverance and the one who continually cares for us. Well, as we continue to thank David doesn't stop there, of course. He continues. And if you look there in verses 4 and 5, David exhorts us to invite others to join in thanksgiving. David will often do this in the Psalms. Other psalmists will do this. In other words, it it broadens from an individual to a corporate experience. Uh, There's much to be said we could about how God has created us to be in community. but, But the point here is that there is an invitation to join others in worship. If you look there in verse 4, notice what he says. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. David here commands the congregation to, to come and to worship, to sing praises to the one eternal God. The saints are those holy ones. David doesn't invite the retrobate. David doesn't invite sinners. He invites saints to come and to gather around him as he gives thanks to the one true and living God. Notice what he says there at the second half of verse 4, that we are to give thanks to his holy name. Literally, that in the Hebrew, it's a memorial to his holiness. It's language borrowed from, from Exodus chapter 3. When Moses is confronted with God's character, he, God reveals himself as holy. I am who I am. I am set apart. I am holy. David appeals here to both God's uniqueness and his greatness. To be holy isn't merely to be morally pure. God is morally pure. He is holy. He is without sin. But he is also set apart. He is unique and great in power. David gives thanks to the only God. The God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. I am who I am. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. David makes clear that the object of Christian worship, the object of our thanksgiving, is this holy and great God. He alone is worthy. But David's invitation to the congregation is meant to teach us and to teach them. You see, you tend to remember those things which you tell others. You do. If you remember maybe back in school or maybe perhaps in a workplace setting, 
particularly in discipleship, we do this often, is when you learn something new, perhaps you learn some fact, some random fact about uh, space, the universe, uh, nature, perhaps you learn some interesting fact about a politician or some, some news. When you go and tell that news to somebody else, it tends to stick with you. You tend to remember information. So as a student, we often want to tell our students that, listen, go, go home and tell mom and dad what you learned today. Now, that's not just to keep mom and dad in the loop. That's because there is a pedagogical thing that happens, that when you communicate truth that you learn to others, you tend to remember it more. And so David here in this psalm is saying, listen, I want you to, I want to invite you to give thanks to God because as I'm telling you why God is worthy of thanksgiving, I'm going to be reminded that I need to give thanks. In other words, by inviting others to regularly give thanks to God, it will cause you to tell them why God is worthy of such thanksgiving. This is what he does. Look there in your Bibles. Verse 5. He does not just say give thanks to God. He gives them the reason why. In other words, he says, I want to share some news with you, and I'm also going to tell you why you need to listen to this news. For God's anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Now, we could camp on that truth all day. I mean, verse 5, we could spend all afternoon just reveling in the beauty and the wonder of it. But, but here, David here gives us the reason why the saints praise the Lord. This is the foundation, the basis of our thanksgiving, namely the Lord's mercy. He contrasts ideas here in this psalm, in, in verse 5. He contrasts anger with favor, night with morning, weeping with joy. He's contrasting these ideas to demonstrate this is God's character. You might have experienced this, but this is really who he is. His anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. David, in verse 5, attributes his sufferings to the Lord. A part of the process of cultivating thanksgiving is to understand who is the real source of my troubles. Who's the real source of my pain? Who's the one who has brought the weeping into my life? Who does David say did that? Well, He says that his anger is but for a moment. God, because of David's sin, was inflicting suffering upon him that David might turn from his sin and trust in the Lord. But David reminds the singers that God's anger is only temporary. It's as temporary as the night. Sometimes nights can feel really, really long. But the sun always comes up in the morning. God's creation, David says, is imprinted with God's character. That the night is as short as God's temper. That God is a merciful God. That he is relenting of his anger. That his anger is only for a moment. 
And do not be confused, he says, that God's anger is like the anger you experience in your life. Because you, you know, God, you know, often in our lives, we attribute character to what we've experienced. So when we say God's angry, in our minds, we think about all the angry people in our lives. All the people who've been mad at us. All the people who have grudges against us. All the, all the grudges, perhaps, that we hold. But God isn't like that. He doesn't hold a grudge like we do. He's forgiving. He's relenting. He's merciful. His anger is but for a moment. But his favor is for a lifetime. Let that settle into your soul. That, that doesn't take rocket science to understand that God, his favor, his grace, his, his, his mercy, his unmerited favor is, is for a lifetime. It pales into comparison to the, to the short momentary inflictions that we feel. This is the God that Moses met on Mount Sinai. When Moses pleaded, God, reveal yourself to me. The Lord revealed himself as one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see, it's because of God's character that we give thanks to him. It's because he is a God who is who's favorable forever. David here describes what he means in a vivid word picture. Look there at verse 5. We, if you didn't know Psalm 30, you knew this perhaps. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Right? You got, I know you got it on your wall at home. So stop. I know it's crocheted, right? On your wall at home. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. What does he do here? What he does is he personifies weeping as a traveler. He uses the language of, of a traveler who comes and lodges at night. He comes and stays at the house for the evening, but here's what's great. He's gone in the morning. Those are the best guests, right? The best guests are the ones you leave in the morning. They don't, they don't linger around. This is what David says, weeping in the perspective of eternity. Weeping is a passing traveler who lodges for the evening. And when you wake up in the morning, he's long gone. Now you might think this morning, that's not been my experience. Every night is a night of weeping. Every morning is a night of weeping. David doesn't mean that every single morning on a 24-hour schedule, you know, you're going to wake up and things are just going to be amazing. But there is a sense of relief, isn't there? In the momentary, in the reality, in the darkness of the night, in the darkness of the soul, in the midst of depression and discouragement and despair, that the morning's coming. There is a morning coming. It may not come today. It may not come tomorrow. It, it may not come this year. Brothers and sisters, there is a morning coming. Pain and sorrow are temporary. In the New Testament, Paul describes our struggles in this fallen world as light, and there again, momentary. And not worth comparing to the weight of eternal glory. The Apostle Paul uses Psalm 30 to help Christians understand in the midst of affliction and suffering in this fallen world, that if you were to take them in the balances of life, if you were to take in one hand the sufferings that you are currently being crushed by, he doesn't minimize them. He doesn't say, listen, suck it up. He doesn't say you're a wimp. 
He doesn't do any of that. He, he acknowledges them for what they are. He says, I was beaten. I was left for dead. These are real pain, real sorrow. But he weighs them up. In the balances of eternity, eternity wins. Brothers and sisters, in the scales of eternity, these sufferings are light and momentary. Are you crushed by the weight of sin? By the weight of sorrow in this world? Are you perhaps this morning overwhelmed by your current circumstances? Is there sin that the Lord is inflicting you because you're unrepentant? Take heart. God's anger is but for a moment. Don't believe, believe the whispers of the enemy that God will not forgive you, that God is mad at you, is angry with you. Remember that suffering is the way of the cross, the way of the Christian life. As the great Puritan Thomas Brooks put, all honey would harm us. All wormwood would undo us. A composition of both is the best way in this world to keep our souls in a healthy constitution. Friend, if it's all roses every day, it would undo. It would not be good, nor would a life of constant infliction and pain. But to cultivate a life of thanksgiving requires us to not only invite others in, but to remind them of the reason we praise, the reason to give thanks, that our God is a relenting God. He is a merciful God. He is a forgiving God. Thirdly, in verses 6 through 7, we see David transitioning to confession of sin. In order for David to cultivate thanksgiving, he had to be honest about what the real problem was. And that was his pride. In verse 6, David confesses that as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. David had found himself prosperous. Perhaps this was a season of David's life where he was rising to power. He was the king. There was no one greater than him. And in that prosperity, he said, I shall never be moved. Because David was on easy street, he thought it was a safe street. But rarely is easy street a safe street. Because where it's easy, we are tended to pride and to self-reliance. And in grace, God removed. His protection of David. By grace, God said, hey, if you want it to, to do it yourself, then go right ahead and do it yourself. And, and we'll see how things turn out. They de- declared that he will never be moved. Nothing will ever happen. But verse 7 reveals that God removed his presence from David's life. as a way to care for David. David thought he was secure. But that security was left. The security that David knew was, as he confesses in verse 7, was, the, was the, the security that God had given him. Notice what he says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. David confesses that it wasn't, in, it wasn't his strength, his prosperity, but he has realized through his impoverishment, through his suffering, that it was really God. So much so that he recognized that God was not present. Now, David isn't saying that God really left. 
but that God removed his, his care so that David would recognize his need for him. This is a father's love, isn't it? A paternal love. In love, God was chastening David for his pride. He was, in love, God was exposing his sin. You know, we so often think that exposing sin is bad, negative, and ugly. We don't want anybody to know about how we struggle with secret sin. We don't want anybody to know that, that we're really wrestling with pride. We don't want anybody to know that we're struggling with lust because it puts us in a vulnerable place. You see, that's not the place for a Christian to live. That's not the place for the saints to live. We have to live in the light. And, and God, by his grace, will discipline us so that we will be driven to the light and away from darkness. But this is what a loving father does to his son to his daughter. This, of course, is what the author of Hebrews appeals to. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it is for the discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In, in other words, if you never face infliction, if you never face the father's discipline, then you're an illegitimate child. You're not a child of God. If life is easy street for you, that would be cause for concern. Because David is saying, this is what a father does. A father disciplines a foolish son. He doesn't let him perpetuate his foolishness. God, by his grace, by his favor, he says, does these things. While God did not literally leave David, he felt that he was gone. How is God lovingly humbling you today? Is pride preventing you from thanksgiving? In the moment of your suffering, in the moment of your discouragement and, and circumstances, are, are you fighting against gratitude? Perhaps becoming embittered. I don't deserve this. Really? When you get down that I don't deserve this road, here's what happens. You think you're entitled to something you're not entitled to. You've forgotten who you once were. You were a rebel. You... you you wanted the throne. You wanted to live life your own way. And God, by his grace, invited a former rebel into his courtroom, into his palace, into his kingdom. And he says, I'm not just going to let you come in and be a servant. I'm going to make you a son. I'm going to make you a daughter. I'm going I'm to put you up on the throne with my son. You didn't deserve, I didn't deserve any of that. only by grace friend remember that pride goes before a fall and that sometimes a loving father will let his kids fall in order to teach them that they need him to pick them up don't think that the Lord hates you or that he doesn't love you because of the moments of suffering you currently are enduring. But fight. 
the fight of faith to believe God's goodness even in the midst of darkness. Pride prevents us from cultivating thanksgiving, but calcifies us in an endless cycle of entitlement. Confessing our self-reliance is a step towards cultivating thankfulness. If you are not regularly confessing sin, I guarantee you, you are struggling with gratitude and thanksgiving to God. Finally, in verses 8 through 10, David invites us to to give thanks consistently, to to cultivate a life of consistent thanksgiving. In verses 8 through 10, he repeats his plead for mercy. In other words, he's doing what I'm saying, consistent, regular. In other words, he is demonstrating what we need to do. He's saying, look, I didn't just plead for help once. I didn't just call God up and say, hey, I need help. But he, but he recognized that he needed to do this consistently and regularly. He needed to consistently have God as the object of his cry. So in verse 8, he says, God, to you, O Lord, I cried. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. In other words, he, he's reminding himself and his reader That the object of our thanksgiving, the object of our praise, the object of our prayers is the Lord. To his character, to who he is. He is merciful. He's relenting. It's to him we pray. And this cry is continued. The language here seems to be momentary. I cry. But really, the Hebrew really has this aspect of of continual, perpetual, regular crying out to the Lord. In other words, he doesn't say, I just cry. I'm crying. I'm on uh, every day. It's a cry for help. Every day, I'm crying out to the Lord. I need you today, Lord, show up in my life. But is that true for you? Is your cries for help only just, you know, when things get really bad? Or do you recognize you live in a fallen world? So therefore, if you understand what I mean by that, that this is a sinful world and you are surrounded by sinners, you need help every day. Every day. Sin from within or sin from without, you're going to need help today. And you're going to need help tomorrow. You're going to need help on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And then next Sunday, we'll do it all over again. Until Jesus comes again. Our cries are continual. In verse 9 here, we we see David arguing with the Lord a bit. And he offers some objections to his sufferings. If you really reflect on what David is doing here, it's quite quite powerful. What profit is there, he says, in my death? He's saying, God, if I die, if you kill me, I can't worship you. He's arguing with the Lord to save him. this This is so true. Faith in God is very argumentative. You see, one of the things that prosperity preachers get right is the aspect of, I'm going to believe truth. The problem with them is they're wrongly interpreting the truth. But for Christians, it's a fight of faith. It's a fight. You're fighting against your sin nature and the, the enemy to believe promises of God. Every day is... No, 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 no. Enemy? No, no, no. Satan? No, no. God is love. He, he, he is forgiving. He's relenting. 
No, he's not. He'll, he'll, he'll hold that over your head for eternity. I bet you he brings it up. No. And so what David is doing here in this particular text is, is, is reminding that God is faithful. If David dies, then there will be no witness to the Lord's restoring power. He's appealing then to the Lord's character. You see, God does all that he does for his own glory. And David here is appealing to, to God's nature. If God does everything for his own glory and David's dead, then he can't give glory to God. And so he concludes this stanza by a final opportunity. He says to God, verse 10, look at what he does. He says, God, I, I wanna, I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to give you a, an opportunity you can't pass up. I'm going to let you be my helper. Notice what he says. Lord, be my helper. I, I'm, I'm employing you. I'm inviting you. Be my helper. I want you to, to help me. And so he contracts God to be his helper. Well, as David concludes this text this morning, he invites the reader to remember the Lord's past faithfulness. As Christians, this is what we must continually do. He uses language of lament, sackcloth, and ashes. A common description of mourning and suffering, as well as remorse in the Christian life. Notice what he says there in verse 11. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. There he is again comparing and contrasting two ideas. Mourning, weeping with dancing. We know David, was he loved to dance even naked at times, uh, before the Lord, uh, right? He turned his mourning into dancing. God, God took him from the place of, of, of weeping, of, of lamenting, to a place of celebration and joy and satisfaction. You've loosed my sackcloth. Sackcloth, that again, was a picture of sackcloth and ashes. When, when there was a season of repentance and remorse and lamentation in the nation of Israel, they would, they would put on these sackcloths and they would cover themselves in ash as a reminder of God's judgment for their sin. God does not leave David in his sin, but restores him and clothes him with gladness. You remember in Psalm 51, when David was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba, when Nathan came to him and said, look, I know what you've done. You've sinned before the Lord. What does David cry out when he confesses? Restore the joy of your salvation. God's forgiving love is, is a love that turns from mourning into dancing, from sackcloth and lamentation to gladness. Here's the point. God is faithful to forgive our sins. God is merciful and just. Plummer, a Puritan pastor reflecting on this text, wrote this. Even in this world of sorrow, no small part of our fit work is praise. As long as life Last, especially in the case of the righteous, mercies greatly abound. But much more will they be called to praise in heaven. Let us extol him here with, with mouth, voice, for life is all its blessings. Then may we hope to spend our eternity in the blissful presence of his service. If God exalts us, he says, let us exalt him. If he humbles us without destroying us, let us count it a great mercy and give thanks. All the charges of our earthly existence are subject to his sovereign disposal. 
They could not be in better hands. Brothers and sisters, let us remember to cultivate a consistent time of worship. As David concludes this psalm, he says, listen, I make a vow to you, verse 12, that I will praise you forever. I vow that I will make it a part of my regular daily life to give thanks to you for the work you've done in my life, God. It will be for my soul's good, my glory, and I cannot be silent. Brothers and sisters, is that you today? Can you not be silent? Do you have something? Is there this sort of burning desire in your soul? Like, I've got to tell someone about Jesus. I've got to tell someone about what Jesus has done in my life. The true saints of God have that desire. They can't be silent about God's love. The Lord is worthy of our praise and thanksgiving because of his continual care. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would just walk through these steps regularly in our life where we're exalting the Lord, where we're inviting others into to thanksgiving and praise, where we're confessing our pride and ingratitude and lack of thanksgiving, and that we are reveling in God's care by continually giving thanks to him. As you consider this psalm as a whole, David again is appealing over and over and over again to the character of God particularly to his mercy, mercy and suffering. Weeping may tarry for the night, he says, but joy comes in the morning. Brothers and sisters, let that truth this ring in your heart all day today and all week. The morning is coming. Joy is coming. One morning is coming soon. The morning star will rise and wipe away every tear from your eyes. As Peter was a witness to it, as he says that we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention, to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Peter was a witness to it, and John saw it. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root. I am the son. I am the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Brothers and sisters, let us keep praising God and trusting in his faithfulness until that morning comes when the day star rises in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we would become more and more thankful in our lives, that we would cultivate that thanksgiving. Father, help us to grow in that way. We pray that we would honor you in our life this week.